Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. One, two, three, four. Hello, curious minds, and a very warm welcome to The Research Beat with me, your host, Jordan Krasinski. Today, we're going to be talking about engines. They're all around us, but what goes into their design and what are they going to look like in the future? We're going to be going through this with DPhil candidate in engineering science from the University of Oxford, Teho Yehart. Teho, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Teo, let's go straight into it. Can you give us an overview of your research? Yeah, absolutely, happily. As you mentioned, uh, I'm a PhD student in engineering science at the University of Oxford, um, and I work in Thermal Propulsion Systems Research Group. Now, what uh, my group is specialized is, as the name suggests, in thermal engines. Now, there's a variety of different thermal engines, such as uh, jet engines or Stirling engines, Rankine cycle engines. But my team is mostly focused on internal combustion engines. My research, more specifically, focuses on um, heat transfer, heat transfer measurements uh, and surface temperature measurements, um, all at very high speed. So we are talking about uh, a microsecond changes in the wall uh, heat flux. Now, why uh, we want to measure that? Well, we want to reduce uh, the heat losses. Uh, and the energy uh, uh, losses associated with it. And uh, we hope to understand that better in order to aid the development of uh, computational tools that allow us to design better engines in the futures. So I would say that in a nutshell is an overview of the research that I'm doing. It's very interesting work. So let's just go through it step by step. Can you tell us what exactly is an internal combustion engine? And where do we find them in everyday life? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure many of uh, the listeners will know what an internal combustion engine is. Simply speaking, it's a device that converts um, the chemical energy stored in the fuel, fuel that can be gaseous or liquid, uh, into a propulsive uh, power, into the motion. Um, so it does that through combusting that fuel, creating thermal energy, and that thermal energy then uh, rises pressure uh, within the engine, within the combustion chamber, and we can utilize that pressure to create uh, propulsion. Um, where we use them in practical application, where there are numerous and countless applications where, where we use them, of course, the most well-known is probably application in uh, our vehicles, in cars. Um, but of course, we use them in, in many other applications as well. Uh, particularly important is um, the heavy-duty transport and the freight sector. So we're talking about trucks, ships, uh, but also aviation uh, and even power generation. Sometimes we use internal combustion engines to create electricity uh, using natural gas or biogas. Um, or they're obviously used in many other applications as well, such as small generators uh, that we use you know, at fairs, or we use them in lawnmowers, for example. So they're really, really countless of applications where we use them. 
So the internal combustion engine is really powering the entire modern transport system. Yeah, um, we could we could say that. Um, of course, uh, the electrification um, and electric propulsion is now becoming important as well. Uh, but still, a significant proportion of the transport sector is powered by an internal combustion engine, exactly. As well as, as you just mentioned, the very important act of mowing the lawn. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, definitely an important if we, if we want to keep our uh, lawns nice and, nice and green. <laughs> so you just touched on electrification there, which we're going to get into later. But first, why is it so important? to reduce heat losses in these engines? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, a typical internal combustion engine will only manage to convert about a third of energy stored in the fuel into a useful work. So of course we, we, we would want to increase that. Now the other two thirds are heat losses. About a third of the energy uh, is heat loss through the exhaust system. Now that is just um, a characteristic of thermal engines and there's not that much that we can do there. However, uh, one third of energy is lost through the walls of the combustion chamber. So combustion chamber is basically a volume where we create combustion and where we extract useful work. And any heat losses there will directly impact our efficiency. And of course we want to improve the efficiency. Um, so, we, we want to reduce these heat losses as much as we can. Now, the theoretical studies uh, performed before say that even if we do manage to reduce this wall uh, heat flux, the efficiency potential are there, but are quite limited. But we still have uh, an ambition to try to reduce wall heat losses because of the number of downstream effects. So by reducing the wall heat losses, we can uh, reduce the size of the cooling system. So you'll be aware that every car uh, that we have on the road uh, has a cooling system. They have a radiator, they have a grill, and that's how uh, we cool that excess heat because otherwise the engines would overheat. Now that comes with a weight penalty, that comes with a cost penalty, and that also comes with an aerodynamic penalty. So if we manage to reduce the wall uh, heat losses, well, then we can reduce the size of the cooling system. Um, uh, that can reduce the weight of the vehicle. And weight has a very important um, uh, effect on the, on, the, on the energy required to move the car around. We can reduce aerodynamic losses. Again, very important uh, way to improve uh, the efficiency of cars. And perhaps critically as well, uh, we can benefit from reduction of emissions. From, um, from the engines. So not just carbon dioxide emissions, but also emissions of other pollutants, in particular, in particular during the cold start phases. So yeah, it's, it's very important to try to reduce the heat losses out of these engines. So there's a really nice mixture of ambitions there, reducing emissions generally, which is important. There's the kind of engineering challenge of just constantly improving the way that things are designed, and then the desire to make vehicles and engines more efficient, able to move more effectively with less energy input and less loss of energy through waste. So Teo, tell us, what 
kind of methods are you looking at to reduce heat losses? Yeah, so there are a number of uh, methods that industry has been using in the past and is trying to implement um, in the future as well. Um, so the first, you know, a method that we can um, apply right away is uh, to try to reduce surface to volume ratio. So for a desired power output, we need a certain volume of the engine, a certain volume, total volume of uh, all combustion chambers uh, combined. Um, but if we can manage to improve the surface to volume ratio, in other words, keeping the same volume, but decreasing the surface area of the surrounding walls, well, that's the first step we can use to uh, try to reduce the heat losses. So that's something that, you know, manufacturers have already been trying to achieve, of course, all within the technical limits. Um, we have some other methods that have been used before. Uh, one of them is uh, the sodium-filled valves. So um, uh, in order to control the ingress and egress of gases uh, such as air and exhaust gases in the internal combustion engine, we need to control that with engine walls. Um, and typically those walls would be solid metal walls, which is not the best, again, in terms of uh, controlling and keeping the heat within the combustion chamber. So sodium-filled walls have been implemented, especially in high-performance applications. Um, and uh, that means that part of the volume is void. And that also, uh, that basically helps to create an insulation. Um, we can try to reduce the gas temperatures. Uh, the, the high gas temperature is what is driving the heat loss in the first place. So if we can try to reduce that, then we can you know, reduce the heat losses as well. And there are methods that have been implemented, such as uh, reusing part of the exhaust gases in the combustion chamber, as this helps to decrease the cylinder temperatures. Uh, the lean uh, air fuel mixtures, so in other words, meaning having an excess of air, so more air than we need, uh, turns out to help reduce the cylinder temperatures as well. Uh, but of course, there's a limit to how lean we can go as uh, combustion instabilities uh, then appear. Um, but more recently, a lot of focus has been on developing special insulating materials. So, as I've mentioned, traditionally we've been using metal for combustion chambers, so that would be aluminium or some steel. Uh, and metals obviously conduct heat very well, uh, but we want to reduce the heat losses. Uh, so, initial research in that has started back in the, I would say, 1980s, initially for military purposes, uh, where a thick ceramic coats were used. And they did allow reduction of the heat losses to a certain extent, but it had a number of uh, other issues, namely that um, the, the fresh charge of air was getting preheated, uh, which then prevented us from using very high compression ratio, for example. And high compression ratio is one of the means how we can increase the efficiency. So there was a trade-off, and the benefit of using the codes wasn't substantial enough. But more recently, we've been focusing on very, very thin uh, insulating materials that have not only low uh, thermal conductivity, but also low thermal capacity. And what we try to achieve with that is we try to achieve uh, the temperature swing 
on the surface of these walls. So basically, we want the temperature to rapidly swing from you know low temperature uh, close to the atmospheric air temperature at the beginning of the cycle at the beginning of the process, and then rapidly raise to a temperature of you know 800 degrees Celsius or even more uh, within a span of few microseconds. In other words, we want to keep the temperature of the walls as close to the temperature of the working gas in the engine. Because in theory, that should allow uh, us to reduce the heat losses without any negative uh, effects of preheating intake air and needing to reduce compression ratio and so on and so forth. So that's the most recent development uh, in terms of trying to reduce the heat losses. So the so-called uh, temperature swing coatings. It's really fascinating to hear how many different techniques there are for making potential improvements and that this device, this mechanism, the internal combustion engine, which has humble origins, has gone on being improved. It's had research plowed into it again and again over many decades. And really interesting to see something that just doesn't stop being improved in the research world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the characteristic of the internal combustion engine is that we often have to play with trade-offs. So we want to find an optimal trade-off where, you know, we can achieve the highest possible efficiencies within the budget limits and technical limits. So Teo, modern engine development involves quite a lot of computer modeling. Could you explain to us how your work connects to the modeling and why it's so important within your field? Yeah. Yeah. So to uh, first maybe explain why modeling is so important, um, developing a modern sophisticated internal combustion engine without computation modeling is simply not possible anymore. And the reason being that we have extremely strict emission regulations, but also a very high efficiency targets. So effectively, we want to trace almost molecule by molecule uh, as to what is happening within the uh, internal combustion engine. Um, and because of the trade-offs that I mentioned, there's a lot of things that we need to consider. So how we how we guide the airflow, how we mix it with fuel, yeah, how we create uh, the, the motion of uh, the charge inside the uh, cylinder, etc., etc. And simply doing that with experimental tests would be too expensive, too long, and uh, probably we wouldn't uh, achieve adequate uh, results. So computational modeling is really, really important. Um, the important aspect of research is to accurately create these computational models. So these are basically mathematical tools. And they need to be experimentally validated with basic experiments. Um, and this is where my work um, hopes to, to help. So part of the computational modeling is also to predict uh, the heat losses. Heat losses directly affect the cylinder temperatures. The cylinder temperatures directly affect efficiency and emissions generation. Uh, so we want to understand accurately what uh, heat losses we will have. And moving further forward into the future, we want to understand how these uh, thermal swing coatings will behave. In other words, what temperature swings will be they um, achieving in different operating conditions. Uh, so if we can uh, accurately measure the surface temperature on them, will that then directly help uh, feed information for tuning effectively computational models for heat transfer. 
And yours is not the only discipline where computer modeling is becoming more and more important as the complexity of ideas and potential applications increases. Like you said, it's not possible to apply all the resources needed to actually, in some cases, just afford to make a, a practical experiment. So you need to use the modeling to see if we do this, how is it likely to work? Exactly. So we always start with, you know, initial uh, computational modeling. Uh, so initially very simple mathematical models to create a basic design. Then that then upgrades to a sophisticated 3, 3D models of engines to, again, try to trace almost molecule by molecule. Um, and then when we have that concept um, established, uh, then typically we would uh, create an experimental setup, which would be a smaller version of the real engine. So a single cylinder version of the engine, do the final development on, on that before creating a full size engine and just prove uh, its concept. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. So in burning issues, we really want to hear about the academic matters that are important to you. And Teo, I think first you're going to tell us a little bit about efforts involved in academic work. Yeah, academic work and, you know, a work of a PhD student is, yeah, definitely difficult. Uh, some of the challenges that I find uh, particularly difficult are finding a novelty, especially in the field that, you know, has been um, extensively researched in the past, you know, almost 100 years, we could say. Um, so finding a novelty is definitely difficult. Um, and in particular, when we're talking about experimental work, uh, there's a significant amount of effort needed uh, to prepare experiments, to, to plan them, to prepare them, to run them at a you know, level that gives us the accuracies that we need. So, um, a significant amount of time is needed for often very limited research output. You know, often we do experiments uh, only to find out that we can repeat the experiments. So, you know, we don't have valuable conclusions after that. So I would say that can be quite uh, mentally challenging, the lack of clear research outputs often. Um, so I would say that is a difficulty of research or in particular of a, of a PhD research where we are even more limited with the time to, to deliver the output because that is what uh, will allow us to graduate at the end of the day. For the researchers and professors, of course, there are other challenges as well. Often uh, they need to uh, combine a lot of work so they often do not just research but also need to teach, need to lecture, need to prepare tutorials, need, need to mark tutorials they obviously need to do research as well and for that often they need to apply for funding uh, so uh, funding applications are usually quite extensive because not rarely we talk about millions right so those millions have to be spent uh, wisely that means that the application processes for, for this uh, funding opportunities are uh, usually very lengthy and, and difficult to get um, so yeah, definitely for researchers, um, there's a lot to handle. 
um, and in particular in our field, uh, the field of internal combustion engines, the uh, funding available has quite significantly reduced in the recent years. Uh, so it's becoming harder to obtain the funding because, of course, a lot of efforts are put into electrification, which is extremely, extremely costly. So, yeah, those are definitely some of the challenges that, that I would say are, are burning. <laughs> so on the point of finding novelty, how much pressure does this really put on academics? Are you always seeking to find novelty at any cost? Effectively, yeah, majority of the research output needs to be novel or significantly better than before uh, or, or, you know, uh, provide some improvement. So sometimes researchers would prepare a technique that is a slight improvement of the previous technique. Uh, but if, you know, it turns out to be an improvement, then that would be a novel research output. Some work can be done only to verify the work of others, see if uh, you can obtain the same results. And if you obtain contradicting results, you know, trying to understand why the results are contradicting. Um, so I would say, you know, mostly we have these two types, trying to verify the work of others, but often, often definitely provide some novelty to the field. On the point of funding, mm -hmm. you mentioned to me previously always having to be on the hunt for new funding opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the kind of pressure that academics like you face in trying to always find that next opportunity? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a pressure. Uh, funding is needed in order to run a research laboratory. Funding is where, you know, uh, the salaries are sometimes covered from. Funding is, is what uh, provides for the equipment necessary for research, uh, whether that's, you know, uh, licensed equipment for computational uh, software or an, an experimental um, material. In addition to that, uh, researchers you know want to have phd students in their teams and often these phd students need to be funded as well in order to cover the tuition fees um, and also provide a you know a bursary for for the living for their maintenance so in order to secure funding for that again researchers need to 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 try to obtain that funding and like i said that funding you know is out there but it's it is quite difficult to to obtain so yeah, it's definitely uh, a pressure on, on researchers and professors um, to, to get funding and get funding on time, sure. So Teo, in this discussion, we've touched a little bit upon electrification and we're really going to go into this subject now and into a few other things through the lens of Formula One, actually. So we've had a look at a few articles from the BBC and from the Guardian and these articles are all about Formula One's plans for 2026. And would you mind telling our audience about what's going on here? Yeah, uh, so Formula One uh, as you know, the most sophisticated, almost the most sophisticated engineering we can think of um, with high publicity will go to 100% sustainable fuels uh, by 2026. And they already have a 10% uh, biofuel blends at the moment. Um, so what does that mean? Well, that means that, uh, you know, we use similar technology to what we use currently. So using an internal combustion engine um, in a 
hybrid application together with a um, electric powertrain. So we use a combination of the internal combustion engine and of the electric motor. Uh, but instead of using fossil fuels as an energy source, the Formula One is planning to use sustainable fuels. What that means is that fuels are either created by processing, such as processing of waste, or uh, capturing the uh, solar energy with, um, for example, uh, biomaterials such as algae or, or uh, food waste, um, or producing the, uh, those fuels synthetically, which effectively means that we use uh, electricity, for example, excess renewable electricity when there is a surplus of uh, wind power, and use that electricity uh, to create a synthetic fuel. So these fuels are very, similar to uh, fossil fuels, but they're artificial in, in their origin. And their, um, their compounds are more predictable uh, because when we're talking about fossil fuels, fossil fuel, uh, like petrol, consists of uh, a range of different fuel molecules, so to say, uh, whereas synthetic fuel, we can quite closely target which molecules we want to have, and that can help us make better engines uh, as well. So yeah, Formula One is trying to, uh, will go to 100% sustainable fuels by 2026, and that basically means that any uh, carbon dioxide that is emitted uh, by the engine is the one that has been previously captured from the atmosphere. There will be a sort of net zero uh, carbon output from these powertrains. So there won't be any additional carbon coming out of the engine and its processes. And... Where is electrification tied to synthetic fuels? Well, we have a quotation here from Ross Braun, F1's Managing Director of Motorsports, which makes it clear. The great appeal is when we find the solution, you can use it in your road car without making any changes to the engine. We will have close to 2 billion internal combustion engines on the planet, and whatever electric solution we find, whatever hydrogen solution we find, there's still going to be 2 billion cars. There are parts of the world where those cars won't change to electric, so electrification is coming, but the point here is that until it's implemented fully, the synthetic fuels that Formula One is developing can actually be used in standard road cars to alleviate the problem of carbon output. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, the typical life expectancy of cars used on the road is extending, right? So it's not uncommon now to see cars on the road from, you know, the early 2000s. Um, and of course, you know, these cars might be running on uh, for longer still, because often when we use them here, they often go to other uh, countries in development and they're used there for another 20 years or so. So internal combustion engines will be around, um, you know, from uh, engines from previous generations, but also from, from nowadays and, you know, uh, from future years as well. Um, and they can be carbon neutral, providing uh, the fuel for them is carbon neutral. Uh, so if we manage to, uh, you know, create these synthetic fuels at scale that are a direct drop-in replacement for current petrol and diesel, um, then we can, yeah, significantly uh, reduce emissions from those older vehicles. But then we also have applications where electrification simply will not work. Um, for example, applications such as uh, ships, maritime transport. Um, electrification there simply will not be possible, uh, not, not at least in the foreseeable future, because the weight and the size and the cost of the batteries needed to uh, propel a vessel from, say, China to US 
would, would pretty much take all the space that is currently available for freight. But of course, we want to decarbonize those sectors as well. So internal combustion engine powered by synthetic renewable fuel has definitely high potential to help there. Similar with aviation, for example, uh, the, the battery-powered flights, long-distance flights, will not be possible, um, not at least in foreseeable future with you know the physics that we know at the moment. Um, so, yeah, all these sectors uh, will definitely be using some form of combustion uh, in the future. And the important thing is to try to give them the renewable fuel that they can operate on. And briefly, just tell us a little bit about the substances involved in this, because I think many people will have heard of hydrogen as something that's going to be very important in the future for synthetic fuels. But there's also ammonia as well. Yeah, so hydrogen and ammonia are currently, you know, the two energy carriers that are most hyped about, and for a good reason. Um, hydrogen is the simplest uh, synthetic fuel that you can obtain. So you can directly use, you know, electricity uh, from, let's say, surplus uh, renewable wind generation uh, to create hydrogen out of water. Now, don't be afraid that water will, uh, we, we won't get lost that water. We, the water will come back, you know, after the combustion process is completed. So we won't be using any water. <laughs> but um, yeah, so hydrogen is the uh, simplest synthetic fuel that we can do and therefore also the most efficient synthetic fuel that we can do. And it can be used in many uh, different applications. It can be used in industrial processes where high temperature is needed, such as steel production, concrete production. Um, it can be used in heating. Uh, electrification of heating um, is possible to a certain extent, but definitely uh, comes with, you know, a significant increase in generation capacity needed in order to heat all the homes with electricity. Uh, so hydrogen will be definitely helping there. Uh, but like you mentioned, it can be used as a fuel in internal combustion engines as well. Ammonia is, we, we like to call it a hydrogen carrier. So ammonia uh, consists of nitrogen and hydrogen, and hydrogen is the substance that we use as a fuel that we combust and that propels uh, then our internal combustion engines. And why ammonia is attractive is because if we pressurize it a little bit or cool it down a little bit, it is in liquid form. And that is very important because uh, liquid fuel carries a lot more energy in a particular volume than the gaseous fuel, such as hydrogen. So that is uh, particularly important in uh, applications such as, you know, vessels, like we mentioned before, they need a lot of energy in relatively compact um, space. So uh, that's where ammonia um, has its potential, uh, basically carrying fuel in a liquid form. And on top of that ammonia, the supply chain of ammonia is really well established um, because we use ammonia in many chemical processes, such as production of fertilizers, etc. So this is why hydrogen and ammonia are of particular interest as future fuels. So, oh, Teo, tying everything together, what's your hope for the future of your research? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so if I, if I touch firstly on my personal research, uh, as I mentioned, I hope to be able to measure uh, the 
very fast temperature swings on the surface of the coatings that we plan to use in internal combustion engines. And being able to measure that would directly help improve the computational models that we use to develop engines. So that's a hope for my personal research, I would say. Uh, for research in my field, my hope would be, of course, to improve the efficiency of combustion engines further uh, and reduce the emissions that they generate so that they can help us propel the means of transport uh, in the future where electrification will struggle. So uh, where electrification will struggle is, as we mentioned, you know, heavy-duty transport, shipping, the, uh, the flying, uh, but also automotive applications, uh, especially in low-cost cars. We will really struggle to create low-cost cars. So that is where I hope uh, my research might be able to help in the future as well. So really critical work, seeking to reduce emissions and make the whole transport system more effective and cleaner, not just for people, but for the whole world. Finally, Teo, how can our listeners reach you if they'd like to learn more about what you do? <laughs> yeah, I think the best way to reach me would be through my LinkedIn profile. So uh, if you search under my name, Teo Yehat, um, then you should be able to find me. And yeah, I'll be more than happy to connect and uh, to get in touch with you. Wonderful. Well, Teo, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise and understanding with us. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And yeah, really nice talking to you. One, two, three, four. For more on Teo, you can find him by searching for Teo Yehat. And to listen to more research like his, take notes and share. Sign up for your free trial of Ordemic, ordemic.io, or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 